Good morning again. It's good to be before you this morning to open up God's Word. And we'll continue in our just our last sermon through this mini-series for the book of Romans in chapter 3. We've been there the last number of weeks. And uh, titled this message, Boast No More. Pride is an obnoxious and dreadful sin that stirs the most hate from God. Lust has its place, deceitfulness also, but pride seems to always come in first as the most, most loathed sin. If you remember back in Genesis 3, we were there in December, in the garden where everything was, was there and supplied for Adam and Eve, and they walked with God and had intimate fellowship with Him. All of that was ruined. All of it was shattered because of pride. When they took the fruit and ate because they couldn't stand uh, not knowing and not being like God. And then fast forward just a number of chapters in Genesis to humanity building a tower higher and higher so that they could boast and, and brag about how great they were. All driven by pride. Pride has plagued the human race its whole existence. Pride is seen most clearly for me, most regularly for me, in watching sports. There's a big game happening today. I don't really know about it. The season ended two weeks ago, but the consolation game is today. <laughs> if you watch, you might see a celebration or two or three or four as players make big plays and defensive ends tackle the quarterback and elusive wide receivers escape and get to the end zone. And, and what do they do when they get there? They, they celebrate. Right, gone are their days when an NFL player scores a touchdown and hands the ball to the ref. That ended in Detroit years ago. You can Google who did that a lot. Boasting, it seems, pride is a requirement for the NFL and for many other sports. But the most encouraging, the most productive, the most fruitful Christians on this planet are humble Christians who understand where their salvation comes from. See, pride is the enemy of Christian faithfulness. Pride opposes Christianity. Pride opposes the church. Pride opposes the gospel because at the root of believing the gospel is believing that we can do nothing to save ourselves. There is absolutely no pride in believing Christ because it requires us to understand there's nothing in us that we can do. It's all of God. Pride is the enemy of God, and pride is the enemy of gospel proclamation. And so as Christians, we should run from pride and not boast in our accomplishments because all that we have, all that was being given to us is from God. And so here's the main idea this morning as we finish these last few verses. Christians will not boast in themselves because they're justified by God alone. And three points as we walk through this. If we are justified, we won't boast. If God is one, anyone can be justified. And if the law is upheld, it's because of justification. 
So those are the three points. How do we get here? We're going to read all of Romans chapter 3. So follow with me. If you haven't had a Bible open, I would encourage you to do so. There should be some in the seats in front of you. And follow with me as I read Romans chapter 3, 1 through 31. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our right unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he, has, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So that is Romans 3. Our passage this morning talks about boasting, verses 27 through 31. And I, before we dive into that, I think we need to kind of establish what that word really means, what boasting means. Boasting comes from the battlefield, from the land of war. If you're a soldier in war, uh, you can advance to the battle by saying in your heart and your mind, uh, by shouting even, that we're better than you. 
that we're stronger, that we're wiser, that we're, we're faster, that we have more weapons, that our leadership is better. And so what you're boasting in is what gives you confidence to get up and to get out of bed every day. That I'm strong, I'm tall, I've got a good education, I have a good wife, I have kids, I have a job, no one can take me down. Whatever we boast in is where we draw our confidence. And, and you see, what we boast in fundamentally defines us. So what defines you? What do you boast in? Friends, you will not get much out of this passage this morning if you're unwilling to ask and answer that question yourself. What defines you? What gives you hope to get out of bed each day? What are you boasting in this morning? Where do you draw your confidence for life? Maybe to write that question down and, and to think through that as we walk through this passage. I think it will serve you well this morning to apply this text to your life. And if you think you have a lot to boast in, in yourself, guess what? The Apostle Paul had more. In fact, he lists this. We went through this last year in the book of Philippians, Philippians 3, where he placed his confidence before God saved him. Do you remember this passage and what he boasted in? He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's about to say, no one's better than me, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There was no one better than Saul. He was the best. Saul was the guy. And if anyone could boast in their life, it was Paul. But then God stepped in and crushed all of that good works and gave him a righteousness from God. And mind you, he did this without his permission. And he saved him. So that Paul can say in verse 7, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Here all things mean all things. All of them, he says, I count as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from my works, that comes from me being able to boast and how great I am, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul saw all of the boasting in his good works, in his life, in his religion as rubbish, as filth, as nasty, gross things that you can imagine in order that he may gain Christ. So Paul knew what it meant to give up his earthly life to find a new life in Christ alone. Paul had a good Jewish confidence, and yet because of Christ and what he's done, he refuses to boast in himself, and he boasts in Christ alone. And so we'll launch now into Paul's argument here in verse 27 to, to hopefully drive home this point. 
Christians will not boast in themselves because they are justified by Christ alone. So, point one, if we're justified, we won't boast. Look again at verse 27. That what becomes of our boasting, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. As Paul finishes this argument in chapter 3, he's revisiting something that he's already talked about earlier in chapter 2. The Jews were a proud people and felt superior to the Gentiles because they had the law. They were the covenant people. They, they had the law, they had the circumcision, they had the covenant, and, and they felt they were superior. And Paul had already argued thus far in the book that this was no longer valid under the new covenant, that their boasting would be pointless. The death of Jesus Christ had removed all useless boasting and pride because through faith they can have a right relationship with God. And yet Paul is not saying that keeping the law is wrong. He observed the law on several occasions, but he's arguing here against keeping the law as the basis, as the fuel for salvation. You you won't be able to do this. It's not only fruitless, but it will actually condemn you further into thinking somehow your good works, your, your obedience to this and good behavior means something to God that he will save you. No, instead he says they are to obey the law of faith, as he says in verse 27. See, the law of works actually refers to the Jewish, the Jewish misuse of the law as a system of works to attain righteousness through their obedience. But they are to obey the law of faith, which brings salvation through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, boasting in the law of works is inconsistent with justification by faith alone. Why? Because no human can boast before God in regards to their obedience to the law of Moses because no human could obey the law perfectly. Instead, we find out as we read the Old Testament into the New that the law of works only stirs up pride in humans. The law was meant to show their sin and rebellion against God. Instead, they took it as giving them a a hope, a wicked hope actually, that somehow they could just pull themselves up by the bootstraps and do it themselves. And their pride would drive them to obey the law through the flesh and not faith. And then they began to boast in themselves instead of God. Friends, boasting in ourselves is a half-witted endeavor. Boasting in your good works only further damns you into condemnation. Boasting in your good works is like a drowning man clutching handfuls of cash, drowning and saying, it's all right, I have money. He's still going to die. If you understand the gospel of righteousness received through faith, you will never want to boast about your good works again. Boasting in your works is counter to the gospel because it removes the power of the gospel. To the, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in the cross should humble us. So how can we read Romans 3, 21 through 26 and believe it to be true and then boast about ourselves before God and for others? 
See, all boasting should be destroyed. It should be finished when we understand that we're justified through faith alone and Christ alone. Did we earn the salvation? Go ahead and answer. Do we do anything to get it? Can you be righteous by yourself? Then why do we boast? Do we see the foolishness of boasting as ourselves, as believers, as Christians in Christ? This whole passage, this whole chapter is really about God and what he has done for us. Did you also notice, as we read through the whole chapter, in the section primarily in verses 21 through 31, that has the, the five solas that we talk about, and we've talked about in the past. The five solas of the Reformation, which distinguish the, the reformers from the teaching of the Catholic Church in Rome. Sola means, is a Latin word for alone. And the solas were monumental for our church history 500 years ago in separating the false teaching from the church. And the five are, are grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And we see that in verse 27, in his glory alone that we are saved, not our own, not our good works. So there's no room for us to boast. But friends, we are still called to boast in God and his salvation for us. Paul says this in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As a Christian who is saved wholly by Christ's work on the cross and not our own, it is absolutely appropriate for us to boast in God and his work in saving us. That's where our boasting should be. One of the best ways that you can look at your own life and see if you've grasped the gospel and if you're living out the gospel is that you give praise to God alone and boast in him alone for salvation. And you're growing to be a humble, grateful person. You're learning that the greatest thing that you've ever been given to you is the grace of God as a free gift. That you didn't earn it. You can't keep it on your own. It's all by God and it came through faith. And now you can boast in God and all that he has done for you. And it's only through justification, through faith, that will cause us to boast in God and not ourselves. That is where our confidence should come from, Christian. But what about everyone else? Leading to the second point, right? Is God for the God of Jews only, or can yet more be Christians? Well, that's the next question. Number two, if God is one, anyone can be justified. Look at verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. See, if their temptation was to boast in themselves still, there would be this natural, and what we saw really in history, racial and cultural divide. And boasting in ourselves, boasting in our heritage will lead to human divisions. 
Pride in race, social status, achievements will lead to, to prejudice and condescension and hostility, either in words and most definitely in our heart. And to get their confidence, they would see themselves outside of Christ and see themselves as better than other classes of people. And so to that end, Paul is again going on the attack to wipe out any notion of privilege for the Jewish race. Jews fancied themselves to be better than Gentiles because they worshiped the one true God and that they had possession of the law. So now Paul is turning their own prayer, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And he's turning it towards them to consider that what monotheism means, monotheism is the doctrine that there's only one God, and he's turning it to what it means. It's that the one true God is uniting all humankind, Jew circumcised, Gentile, Gentile uncircumcised, on the basis of justification by faith in Christ alone. And see, for Paul and for the understanding of the New Testament, justification by faith is rooted in monotheism. The law divided humankind, but now justify, justification by faith unites humankind. This is because all can have faith in Jesus, where before it was reserved only for the nation of Israel who had access to the law of Moses. And the aim of the law, I'll remind you again, the law of God, wasn't to make religious insiders feel better about themselves, but to move them to repentance and faith, humbled unto grace, so that they would go and share their faith. But instead, they turned the law into a magic rabbit's foot that they would carry around for good fortune and good luck. The law and the covenant was their calling card to set themselves apart from everyone else. Instead, it should have been their faith and trust in God which should have called others to trust in Yahweh as the giver of all good things. They, they, they were convinced at this point that it was only for them, that God wasn't a God for all. He was just the God of the Jews. Has justification by faith, meaning we're made right with God through faith in Christ, has that united us as a local church? Or are we divided because we want to boast in ourselves and our heritage and our backgrounds? What I mean is, is there a sort of subtle elitism in our lives or in this church or in your friendships that only a select few can be a part of? Do we have that cancer in our church, an unspoken sort of path that's set for just a select few to be a part of? Only a select few can be measured up to. Are we sort of boasting in ourselves and our history and our good works and we don't even see it like, yeah, I've been here. I'm a part of the, 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 the in crowd. And no one else can join. Do you see that behavior? Have you even noticed it in your heart? 
How do we battle that behavior? How do we battle that thinking? We need to remind ourselves that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Meaning that all of us come to Jesus Christ the same way. And so as we are members of a local church, we will seek to treat others the same way. That there isn't any elite club. That there isn't any favoritism in that way. We will seek to live out our covenant as members of this church, which says we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We seek on Sunday mornings during the pastoral prayer to pray for unity of this church, but are you praying for that, members of this church? Are you seeking to be unified as a church? Or do you draw your, your confidence, your, your boasting, your, your, your uh, allegiance or who I am based upon how the relationships I have or, or what privileges I have here or, or how long I've been here? You know, we, part of our church, we pray that God would, would bless us with more that would join our church. Do you follow what that means for us then as a church? It means we have to be more willing to accept them into our body and to e- accept them as equals, as, as fellow members of this church. If you're visiting today, you can just kind of listen in because I'm talking to just the church here. There's a tendency in churches to get to know people that were here and to just say, that's good, we're good. I know everyone, I'm I'm close to everyone, and I'm fearful that anyone else in that. Friend, that battles the gospel. That goes against what Christ is asking us to do as a church family. See, part of the covenant, part of the responsibility is that we pray for unity, the spirit of bond and peace. And then, then the next part is even better. We will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require So as a church, as we grow, as we become new members, which again, I'll remind you, church, that when we accept new members, they're, they're wanting to join with us and we're wanting to join with them. So there's that two-sided responsibility of accepting one another. That means we have to walk together in brotherly love as become a members of a family. And we exercise affectionate care. You know what that means? Love. Even though they might be different than us. And it's hard to talk to them because maybe their uh, things they're enjoying are something completely different than ours. And watchfulness, meaning we, we care for them enough to watch out for them. And we faithfully admonish and entreat one another. See, any sort of elitism and favoritism that could come into a church is wiped out when we're unified in the Spirit. Because the Spirit, just so you know, doesn't fight against itself. And we walk together, meaning we will speak to spend time with one another. And we will show Christian love 
and we show care for one another. We need, to think, we need to remind it of this, friends. Every time we bring in new members, you need to be reminded of this. I mean, look around. We're not Costco. If you want a Costco club, it's down the, down the road. You can get good deals on bread and cereal, I think. Anyone can join, and it's just a club, but that's not what we are. We're a family. And so we're committed to one another as a church family because a church is made up by people. So when we're committed to this church family, you've committed to love and to care, and you're committed to admonish, which means to carefully and compassionately confront one another. Do you know why there are problems in the local church? First, we all sin. If you're here and you're looking for a church and you're looking for one that doesn't sin, sorry. It's full of sinners. We will continue to sin. Second, as, as Christians, sometimes we don't like to stop sinning. We, we want to continue in the sin. But third, the reason why problems continue to exist in a church family is because members refuse to admonish one another with love and gentleness and care. And do you know who they go to to do that work? Pastors. And it's, I'm called to it. I, I announce it every week. I, I'm a member of this church. I'm called to do this. But friend, I'm not the only one. And if we're going to grow in our love and care for one another and our love and care for the Lord, we have to be willing to admonish one another. And we do it with love and care and watchfulness and patience but we have to be willing to say the difficult thing to another member because you love them enough to say the difficult thing and because you desire holiness for a church that represents Jesus Christ. This is why Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. You know that, right? He's not saying hard things to a church just to be a big, mean guy. He's showing love for them and for his Lord and his desires for them to be holy. And so he's admonishing them in their improper views of fellow believers. He's admonishing them on their, their boasting in themselves and their, their culture and their race and their history, and he's admonishing them to think that they're the only ones that can be saved, that there's some sort of elitism in, in, in coming to Christ, that, that somehow it's just them and no one else. He's admonishing them so that they don't become a divided church, a divided people, and he speaks to them with love and care and patience. We're surrounded by this in the world. An unwillingness to, to step out and admonish people. And there is just plain chaos out there, pain and hurt. And furthermore, to come down to this path here, the second one of God being one, you know, to understand that, this world have many people who are trusting in their national identity, their culture, that that's what's going to make them justified before God one day. 
In fact, many in our own country in America claim that our country is a Christian nation, and therefore, as a nation, we've inherited the blessings that of faith, including acceptance before God. But Paul and Jesus himself stridently deny that one is born a believer by being born in Israel, and the same is true for America. You are not born a Christian because you're born in this country. And you might think it's funny, but many people believe that. Now, there's a difference between being thankful for your country and believing that your country is morally or spiritually superior to other countries. Friends, the cross destroys all superiority. It it destroys this notion that we're somehow better than other countries. It destroys discrimination as well. See, the gospel changes everything. Not just our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with people in the world. Different classes, different ethnicities, different cultures. And the gospel unites Christians from all over the globe and brings them equally into the family of God. And so when we stand before him that day, it'll be, it'll be incredible to see people and tongues from every nation represented. It will not just be Americans. See, friends, when you get to eternity, some of us will be surprised at who's there. And perhaps someone will be surprised that you're there. God is the one true God, and he can save anyone he chooses. And as we saw last week in our passage, Christ provided salvation by becoming the anti-type of the mercy seat and covering our sins by becoming the atoning sacrifice on the cross. His blood was shed there because the ransom payment that purchased our freedom and led us to have forgiveness for our sins. And God placed that payment on our account and justified us, made us right, declared us acquitted, and finally good with God. And Christ purchased our salvation. And it's our response then to turn to him in faith and to accept his payment for our sins. See, friends, salvation only comes through faith. It doesn't come from the country in which you're born or the people that you call family. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so have you placed your faith in him? Have you turned from your sins of trusting in yourself and repented and turned to Christ and are trusting in him alone? Friends, if you haven't done this, I implore you to do it this morning. And Christians, here, when we understand this gospel and believe the gospel, it removes the hindrances of denial that face people. See, the gospel frees you from allowing criticism and bad news and negative evaluations of you and allows you to face them without it crushing you. Bad news and failure no longer threaten your confidence because your confidence is in Jesus Christ. 
And so as Christians, you can see your faults and your failures. And the more precious and amazing God's love appears, and the more love and appreciation and boasting you have in him for what he's given you. And this is crucial because if you reject the cross and find your hope and your performance, then you will fail. And it most likely won't drive you to the cross, but it'll drive you away from the cross. See, Christian, the gospel gives you new hope and strength to deal with the anxieties that you face in life. Slowly, as as a Christian, you get to know and trust Jesus in, in all of your life And you begin to not be so afraid of death or the future or even other people. And you come to know from reading the Bible that God is for you, Christian. We see in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so you learn to place your fears into his hands and you learn step by step to trust him more because he'll give you all things that you need. And that boasting in, in yourself or in your cultural identity or your heritage is moved away and it's boasting only in the cross. Well, last... If the law is upheld, it's because of justification. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. To overthrow here in this verse could be translated to nullify, which which also means to make of no effect or to cause to cease. And so Paul asked, have we made the moral law to be canceled and irrelevant if we're justified apart from the law? And Paul gives his strong answer here again, as he said many times in chapter 3, no way, no, right? Absolutely not. To the opposite, he says, we uphold the law. Well, that's interesting. To uphold means to cause something or someone to stand. The same word is used in Acts 2 when the other 11 apostles put Peter forward to preach in the day of Pentecost. Go preach, Peter. Cause him to stand. They, they cause him to stand and hold him up to preach. It also means to make firm or to cause something to keep its place. So Paul is saying that his teaching on justification does not nullify or overthrow the law, but it establishes it, it holds it, it makes it even more firm. So the gospel doesn't now say that the law doesn't matter, but that it matters very much. It must be kept. And for those who are in Jesus Christ, it has been kept through him. When Christ went to the cross, he went for us and for our sin. The cross confirms the law because it sends us Jesus for our salvation. The cross confirms the law because in the cross we can see the penalty for our sins and it's placed on God's perfect son, law, perfect law abiding son. See, the cross also confirms the law and it opposes antinomianism 
There's a $10 word. Put that away. Antinomianism is which is salvation without any expectation of obedience. I mean, you can just, I can save and live any way I want. That's not true. Because now the Spirit empowers Christians and, and gives them strength and ability to obey God as justified people. And so the gospel upholds the law by demonstrating that law-breaking is so serious that it brings death and judgment, and that law-keeping is so fundamental that no one can pass through judgment without it being kept on their behalf. And the law is upheld in Christ's death and resurrection. It isn't overthrown, it's not nullified. Christ upheld the law by fulfilling the law perfectly. And so when we turn to Christ in faith, we fulfill and keep the law in its entirety. We see later in Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law's demands on us. Christ not merely ended the law's demands on us, but completed its purpose in every way for us. So yeah, a switch happened to us as Christians because the law has been completed by Christ and fulfilled in every way so we can uphold the law as we come to him through faith. Praise the Lord for Christ's work for us on the cross. So circling back, what are we boasting in today? You know, boasting asks the question, what makes me happy? What makes me glad? What brings me hope for my day? Is it to be well thought of at, at work or at school or at church? Is it at church that you know your Bible better than other people or that you're more faithful than others? Or is it in life and work that you're more respectable? You come from a good family. You have a good moral upbringing. What are you boasting in today? Where does your confidence come from? Have you thought through that? Have you concluded with the Apostle Paul that there is no boasting in ourselves? Or are you mildly interested in continuing to find your worth and satisfaction in yourself? to boast in you. I need to warn you, if you're seeking to continue to work your way into acceptance with God, you will have to try to change the standard by which God will accept you. You'll have to try to make it easier because you know, as well as I do, that we're not perfect and you know you can't live perfectly so what is God going to do with all those imperfections? Or you will simply do nothing and you'll be crushed because you know you can do nothing. And in that you'll either hate yourself or you'll hate God. And when you do that, friends, you're seeking to overthrow the law, to nullify the law. And you're seeking to find salvation outside of Christ and you won't be saved. Friends, it is only through the gospel 
that allows us to recognize ourselves rightly and to rest on Jesus for salvation. The law, the gospel frees us to uphold the law because of what Christ has done. And only the gospel removes the burden of the sin because only through Jesus are we saved. And when we run to him and believe on him for salvation, we will stop boasting in ourselves and we will boast in him alone. And that is the call for everyone, friends. We're going to end our time this morning by singing together the Father's love for us. But before we do, I want to pray. Would you stand with me if you're able as I pray? Father, we thank you for your patience with your church here, with your children. And you have shown us exceeding grace and endurance with us. And God, we ask for more. Not that you haven't been faithful to us in every way, but God, we need your grace. We are foolish and wayward people, and we need your spirit to draw us back into right relationship with you, into a correct understanding of your word. And God, we do pray that you would bring more people into the fold of faith here at Edgewood, redeeming them, washing them, securing them in the cross of Christ, and that you would use us to that end. Father, I'm thankful for this church that is a warm and accepting church and meeting people, and I pray that that will continue to grow and that we would receive people into this fold, that we would be pleased to grow our friend groups and our Bible studies and our dinners and our fellowships and our care groups as you give us more fruit through people and families. God, help us to be thankful for that. Help us to be people that love you, that seek to be changed by you and your word. Help us to live faithful lives for you this week, we pray. And we thank you now, in Jesus' name, amen.